University of California Television presents this podcast of Rabbi Michael Lerner, Taking Back Our Country from the Religious Right, recorded on November 9th, 2006. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Going back many, many years, Michael Lerner has consistently created spaces, cultural spaces, political spaces, intellectual spaces, religious spaces, which I have enjoyed living in. And so I just wanted to take you back on a little memory tour of a couple of them. And I I started crying this morning as I was thinking about all of them. So the first one is 1972. I'm a graduate student at the University of Minnesota. Michael, I think, is an assistant professor at Trinity College, and we're at a meeting of the American Philosophical Society, and he's organizing a new um, organization called the New American Movement, which was a social change organization in which we debated things like, what should we do with the hyphen between socialism and feminism? Uh, We we debated what was the new middle class, was the new middle class, or was the Marcuse right that the students were the vanguard of the socialist revolution? And we had wonderful, wonderful discussions. They went on all night. And uh, this was the early 1970s, for which I was very grateful for everything Michael Lerner did. Fast forward 15 years, 1987, I'm a Fulbright professor at the uh, Hebrew University, and uh, I go to something at Yimka, which is the YMCA of, uh, of Jerusalem. I meet two absolutely fascinating individuals, Michael who will know who they are, and I say, oh, and what are you doing in Jerusalem? They said, we're the tikkun reps. And at that time, tikkun was, I think, a year or two old. And I thought, oh, my God, they're the tikkun reps in Jerusalem. And uh, this was a time in which the first intifada, very different from the second intifada, was becoming you know, a transformative agent inside of Israeli society. And there was a tremendous flowering of the Israeli peace movement. And Michael Lerner was absolutely crucial in making the connections um, between um, what was happening in America and what was happening in the Israeli peace movement. Um, and so now I'll just just blip to the, to, to the present. I think that the way I see Lerner's work is that in contemporary Judaism, he's thickening the experiences and the institutions of cultural Judaism, of diaspora Judaism, and of a Jewish politics, which is a Jewish politics that is beyond the state of Israel and beyond organized religion. Now, for someone whose head is completely buried in the past, I must say that what Michael Lerner is doing in the present, 100 years ago, would have seemed utterly normative. Because 100 years ago, Zionism was a very weak and fledgling and slightly cranky movement. The Bund, which was a diasporic, cultural, pluralistic kind of Yiddishist nationalism in, in, on the socialist left, was a vibrant movement. Um, but for reasons that people sitting here understand very well, because of the war, because of the Holocaust, because of Jewish upward mobility, because of so many reasons, modern contemporary Judaism has kind of shrunk into two two poles, two organizational centers, two activities, organized religion and the state of Israel. And for all the wonderful things about those two things, organized religion and the state of Israel, there are many, many millions of Jews well, millions, the hundreds of thousands, I have to be careful with my numbers here, but many, 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 many Jews in America who 
don't flock to those two poles, who are worried, who are critical, who are ambivalent, who are anxious, who are nervous, and all of those qualities which are so charming and wonderful. But the question is, you know, what comes of those qualities? And I think what, what, what Michael has done is that he's created institutions. He's created the magazine which has survived. He's created the conferences. He's, I think, a, a major force behind things like the Jewish book fairs, the Jewish film festivals, Judaic studies programs, all of the things that have created a tremendously vital uh, cultural Judaism that is that is apart from um, from these from these two mainstays. And so I think as we listen on this incredibly exciting day in American history, um, we can celebrate the hard work that brought us to a moment when we can finally breathe and say we're in history and maybe it's going to go our way. Okay. Well, yes, it's, uh, this is a, um, a moment to celebrate. And, and I, for one, feel like uh, it's extremely important for um, people who have uh, felt upset and powerless to acknowledge that there is um, something that's changing in this country in a very good way. And so... Uh, now, I'm not going to be talking primarily about Judaism, but, about, um, but rather about uh, the interfaith uh, efforts that I've been involved with with Tikkun to create a network of spiritual progressives that is an interfaith organization. Um, but um, I want to first step back and talk a little bit about this, um, about where we are in the struggle. But the struggle... The, the struggle, uh, I want to define in quite a different way than is normally thought of. Because the struggle that I'm in, interested in is a struggle that's been going on for several thousand years. And it's a struggle between two fundamental, fundamentally different worldviews or understandings of the world. Um, and uh, I'm going to um, vulgarize it considerably. I have a, a book called The Left Hand of God, Taking Back Our Country from the Religious Right, which has um, a much more detailed account. So, um, but in order to get this out and uh, do it in a relatively short amount of time, I want to um, just quickly summarize that there, there have been um, two major perspectives on the nature of what it is to be human or what human reality is. And the one view I call um, the view of cynical realism. Let me describe this view. This view is one that says, human beings are thrown into the world by ourselves. And when we come into this world, um, thrown into, into it, I use that term because actually a contemporary articulator of that, the Nazi philosopher Heidegger, uh, used the word thrownness. But um, we're thrown into this world by ourselves. Uh, we are in a, um, and immediately find ourselves surrounded by um, so many other people who are maximizers of their own self-interest, who are looking out for number one. And the way that they do that is that they uh, take advantage and will take advantage of you unless you can protect yourself. The world is filled with people who are going to uh, advance themselves and their own self-interest without regard to the consequences for you or anyone else. And they are interested in themselves purely. 
and uh, they and the way that they are going to act towards you is that they will seek domination and control over you, unless you can figure out a way to get domination and control over them first. Okay. Now this worldview um, was first articulated by Thrasymachus in the. Um, in the Republic and in several other of the dialogues that uh, Plato wrote. And, um, but it's been a continuing theme that through Western civilization and through Western culture. And um, in some modern forms, it's even articulated in a certain variant of deconstructionism. I'm not saying that all of deconstructionist thought is that way, but nevertheless, there's a theme there um, uh, in, the, uh, in the academy in the 1990s that talked about the ideas being basically about power and who has power over whom. And, um, but it's particularly well articulated by um, President Bush, who um, a few weeks ago made this very point, made it very almost saying it as though he had read my book. And um, <laughs> say, saying, um, the Democrats, what the Democrats don't get is that it's a scary world out there and that people are going to hurt us and that we need protection against those, those evil others. Um, so uh, this worldview that I, I call the cynical realist worldview or the worldview of fear or the worldview of domination. Is, um, I also identify with what I'm calling the right hand of God. Um, why the right hand of God? Because it says in, uh, when Miriam at the, right, at the Red Sea is singing a song of praise to God, she says, um, your right hand, God. Your right hand is filled with power. Um, and uh, in, in that song at the sea. So I said, fine, okay, that's the right hand of God, the hand of power and control, and human beings have sometimes seen God in that way, um, and that's how she was seeing God in that moment when she was singing that song. Um, and on the other hand, um, there's another view, the left hand of God view, or let's, uh, I'll, I'll call it a different perspective on the universe, and it's, it starts with the following. Um, you know, we didn't come into the world by ourselves. Actually, most of us came through a mother, and, and this, mother, this mother or mothering other was there for us in our first few years, and we would not have survived without that mother, either a biological mother or a mothering other who would have taken care of us, picked us up, held us, um, was there for us in some way in those first uh, few years. Now, of course, when I say this, a lot of times people in the more intellectual audiences will say something like, you don't know my mother. You know, I, and so I, I have to stipulate that um, it might well be that your mother had all kinds of neuroses and so forth. I, I, I don't want to go there, okay? I just want to say that whatever the limitations of the mothering you got, it was good enough mothering. It was good enough mothering to have gotten you through those first few years when there was no possible way you would survive without a, a, a being, a mothering other who was there um, taking care of you um, without a reasonable expectation of a good return on her investment of time and energy. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Now, this comes with a... Um, when people understand that, they um, come from that place, they come with a different kind of understanding of the world in which security and safety 
comes not through domination, but through building relationships with others, in which the paradigm is a paradigm of love and caring, in which the experience is of that it's possible to find human beings who are giving and caring and loving, not in order to get something for themselves, but simply giving to give, because there is something fundamentally rewarding about the loving experience in and of itself, without regard to its outcome. Do you see what I'm talking about here? This is a different way. This is a different consciousness. Um, and I call this the left hand of God, or I call this the, um, the worldview of, of love, and of, uh, instead of, of a fearful other, of a hopeful uh, perspective on what reality is capable of delivering. And what I want to say is, is that for most human beings alive today, and in fact through much of the past several thousand years, we are on a continuum between the voice of fear and the voice of hope, the voice of domination and the voice of love, the right hand of God and the left hand of God. We are all on a continuum because almost everyone has both of those voices in our heads. We have heard both stories. We have seen the world at times through both perspectives. And all of us are someplace or other on a continuum between these two voices. And where we are exactly at any given moment is a product of a number of different factors. Number one, of our own childhood experiences. How much loving and caring and how good was it from our parents? And then what were the experiences we had growing up in, in school? And then what were the adult life experiences that we had that reinforced either our fearful or our hopeful part, our sense that domination was the only path or that love was a possible path? And then also, what are the worldviews that we hold? The religious systems, the metaphysical systems, the political theologies that, uh, that either reinforce one or other of those two voices. And finally, there's also, and very importantly, our perception of where social energy is moving. Where is the social energy moving between these two voices? Because when the social energy is moving more towards fear, then those voices inside each of us that uh, were based on articulating the view of domination and the view of fear become uh, uh, wildly reinforced by the social energy, and it seems that everybody is going in that direction. And so the wise men of our society and the wise women of our society become the voices of the cynic, the voices of um, uh, Fox TV, the voices of um, the voices of the uh, the people who are reinforcing this notion that you know, come on, what really is happening in the world is everybody's out for themselves and they're going to hurt you and we got to protect ourselves. Okay, and conversely, and so they become the ones who are perceived as the realists who are uh, deeply understanding reality. Conversely, when energy starts to flow towards hope. Um, and towards the possibility of a more loving world, then those philosophers, social theorists, novelists, uh, uh, playwrights, um, uh, poets, um, uh, religious leaders who af affirm, ho affirm the possibility of a world of hope suddenly are rediscovered and suddenly become, uh, again, credited as serious um, prophets of our time. So... Where the social energy is moving 
um, has a great deal to do with whatever is happening, for example, in terms of cultural trends or, um, or uh, what's popular at the university or what kinds of approaches to the world are rewarded in the New York Review of Books or in New York Times Magazine uh, book, or the New York Times Book Review or, whatever, or the LA Times Book Review or whatever. You know, wherever you're looking, um, what seems to be given credit depends on where the social energy is moving between these, uh, these two poles. And so uh, what I want to say to you, first of all, is that it would be a very good idea to think about politics, not really in terms of the traditional left or right, because the left and the right, um, they don't map onto the left hand of God and the right hand, uh, the right hand of God and the left hand of God in a one-to-one way. Why? Because I've been at many anti-war demonstrations where the motivation is fear, not love, or not hope. In other words, um, so I'm not saying that, the, that left and right here, the left hand of God, right hand of God, uh, the, the, um, the fear versus hope maps in a one-to-one way onto left and right in politics. It doesn't because, um, because this hand, the, the right hand of God, is... Um, uh, is Whoever uses fear as the motivation, whoever uses domination and the fear of domination and, this, and cynicism, and I've read many, many um, progressive magazines, The Nation and others, where, that are filled with cynicism and filled with fear and so forth, where I feel like um, they have, they're on that same side of this, where they're moving with the energy towards fear rather than towards hope. So, um, you get that? Okay, so... So what I'm talking about is I'm saying that I think you would be better, it's useful to think of what's going on in politics, not in terms of left-right, but in, to- in terms of hope-fear. And one of the reasons why I, am, I believe that this is a moment worthy of celebration is because I think that just at this moment, what has opened up is the possibility of social energy moving more towards hope. It's not, however, inevitability because um, it's not a guarantee that many of the people who are coming into political power in the Congress today will be moving towards hope as opposed to trying to fight um, a battle about who is better in manipulating fear, who is better in showing that we we can run the war better we can be more powerful than the other guy. We can show how to do fear in a more um, intellectually sophisticated way. Do, do you see what I'm talking about here? So this is so. Um, so again, I'm saying, but the social energy has opened up for the possibility of moving social energy towards hope right at this moment. Now, um, uh, why is it that? Fear, nevertheless, or the energy of the energy of the right hand of God has so much credibility. So easy to make that case. How so easy to get people into that? Well, here I want to talk to you a little bit about the study that um, that I and my colleagues did at the Institute for Labor and Mental Health, um, in which for some 29 years we've been studying the psychodynamics of American society, with particular focus on why people were moving to the right politically. Now, I know in San Diego, what I'm about to tell you might be hard to get because a lot of people here haven't been moving to the right. They've just been there. (laughs) They've been there all their lives, and uh, that's not who I studied. Okay? 
So I want to be clear that if you're going to get up and say, well, you don't know the guys that I know, I want to make it clear. I wasn't studying the people who are the hardcore um, of people who were born into families of uh, evangelical families or born into religious communities that were fundamentalist or born into um, army and navy families, which you have a lot of here. Um, uh, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking now about a very large section of Americans who used to vote for New Deal politics, who used to vote for uh, liberal or progressive um, political parties, and have moved to the right, who have moved to the right politically, and we were trying to understand why that was happening. And um, what we found out, in short, was that the, there was a deep spiritual crisis in American society that the right was speaking to it and the left was not. Now let me try and explain what I mean by that. What is the spiritual crisis? Well, in, um, we spoke, as I think I said, maybe I did or maybe I didn't, that the, the number of people in our study was over 10,000. It was one of the biggest studies that's ever been done of the psychodynamics of American society. And, um, uh, and what people, and people started, we asked people to tell us about their lives. And most people started to tell us a lot about the world of work. You might say, well, why the world of work? Because most people in this society spend most of their waking hours in the world of work and in travel to and from. And so what happens in the world of work has a massive impact on the way people think in the few hours every day that they're not in the world of work. Okay, you get what I'm saying? I said a blessing over the, over the water and got thanking God for creating a world that has so many wonderful, incredible things in it. And one of them is this water. Um, so so um, we asked people to tell us about their experience. And what, here's what people told us. Look, there's a bottom line in the world of work, they told us. The bottom line is to maximize money and power for the people who run the institutions. There were a small percentage of people in the society who work in the nonprofit sector. And then they said, well... In addition to money and power, there's also maximizing the ego of the people at the top of these institutions. But for most people don't work in the nonprofit sector, so they work in the profit sector where the critical thing is to maximize the bottom line of money and power. And in that context, um, the, um, they quickly learn that their ability to maintain their job depends on their ability to show that directly or indirectly they will contribute to the bottom line of, um, of the people who run the institutions or who own those or, or control those institutions. And if they don't, either they or their entire work unit or maybe even the whole branch of the corporation will be downsized or moved to Taiwan or to Southeast Asia or someplace else and they'll be out of a job. Um, so, um, and in learning this, they told us, they are also learning that the, uh, that the, um, the way, uh, that there's nobody in the workplace who is there to take care of you, that everybody has to be out for themselves because, um, it's a, uh, as many people put it, a dog-eat-dog world or, uh, other people said, look, it's all about looking out for number one. This is just what is true. Looking out for number one is the reality that we learn hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. This is just what it is to be a rational person. And you have to be, do, do that in order to survive in the workplace, not because 
necessarily we think our bosses are bad because the bosses are doing this for the same reason, that they also work in a context in which if they can't produce a good bottom line return, that they themselves will lose their jobs. So it's structured into the whole situation there. And consequently, there's nothing we can do about this, they told us. Um, but when they come home from work, and this was um, the... Um, the part that was particularly striking to us, they said, well, we and this is reality, this is the real world, and we hate it. Now, we weren't expecting that about we hate it. Um, and when we were asking people to explain why, what was it that they hated, we learned something that was totally startling to us at the time, but that told more about us than about the reality which is that people hated it because they felt that they wanted to do something with their life that had some meaning and purpose, and that maximizing money in the workplace was not what they saw as a fulfilling purpose for their life. They wanted to have some higher meaning, some higher purpose for their life. They wanted to be able to transcend the materialism and selfishness of the world of work and connect to a higher meaning. Um, and at first we started to describe this as a politics of meaning that was needed in the country to address this hunger for meaning and purpose. I think it's around this area that Rick Warren lives who um, wrote these, these books called, um, uh, well, the first, first one, the one that sold 24 million copies is called The Purpose Driven Life. Do you know about it? And um, uh, people hunger for some higher meaning and purpose in their life. Now, when we discovered this um, as a widespread phenomenon, we started to go to the leadership of the, of the labor movement and the leadership of the Democratic Party and say to them, hey, this is what we're discovering. And what we were told back, by and large, was, uh-uh, that's just not true. We know our people, and what they really care about is money. What they care about is economic security. Um, as James Carville, the uh, lead speechwriter for, uh, for uh, President Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid. Don't you get it? The economy is everything. And you know, if people are happy materially, that's all that counts. Imagine their surprise in 2000 when we had the most incredible economy ever and uh, it didn't translate into a democratic victory. Imagine their surprise. But in any event, we were, um, we, we were, um, uh, so we'd go back to the people we were dealing with and we'd say, hey, they say that all you care about is money. And they point out that you, that you only show up at union meetings when there are contract negotiations. And they'd say back to us, well, first of all, the only reason we come, the reason we only come then is because the meetings are so boring. But if you, but, how do they explain that on Sundays we fill up the churches? We're not going there for money. We're not getting material rewards there. We're going for something else that we can't find any other place in our lives. Um, and secondly, they said to us, and of course it's true that we do care about money because, as many people put it to us, in language almost exactly like this, um, hey, I'm wasting my life anyway. So if I'm going to waste my life in this world of work in which I get nothing in the way of meaning and purpose for my life, 
the least I can get is some compensation for a wasted life. And so I want as much as I can get because maybe at some point in my life I could retire and have some money that I had saved and then be able to shape some part of my life toward doing something that I believe in. Do you see what I'm talking about here? Do you know anything about it? this sound familiar to you? Do you? Okay. So, um, so consequently... Um, uh, people were feeling deeply deprived, and this was a spiritual crisis in their lives that they had no way and have no, very little way of connecting to meaning and purpose. Now, I'm not saying to you that this is 100% of Americans. Uh, there are at least a good 15 to 20% of Americans who have the kinds of jobs in which they can clearly say, here's the meaning to it. I'm a helper in this way or that way. I'm a teacher. I'm a social worker. I'm, a, um, I'm giving back to my society in this way or that way or some other way. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm, a, I'm involved in government service and such and such or whatever. whatever. Uh, there are many different ways to say it. There are 15 to 20% of the population who have those kinds of jobs and for whom what I'm saying will not resonate. But trust me, there's another 80% who have very different kinds of jobs than that who have jobs that, in which they cannot connect what they're doing to anything that they think of as having higher meaning or purpose or service. And by the way, I'm not saying that they're correct in their perception. I'm only saying this is their perception. Okay? Um, and um, uh, so then the most frequent complaint that people have in their daily lives outside of the world of work is something like this. Um, I feel like I'm surrounded by people who are just looking out for number one, and we're selfish, uh, don't care about anybody else. And it wasn't a paranoid perception, it was deeply true. It's deeply true that they are facing people who have learned that this is what it is to be a rational person in this society, is to be a maximizer of self-interest, to look out for number one. And this has devastating consequences for personal life. Um, it has the consequence that friendships feel um, less thick, less real than they used to. Uh, many people report, reported to us that friendships um, uh, today are increasingly based on a kind of exchange relationship. I give to you on the reasonable expectation that you'll give back an equal amount of time or energy to me. And you might say, well, what's wrong with that? That seems like a rational exchange. Well, the problem is, is that when people get older or when they get sick, they're not able to give back an equal amount of time or energy. And then what they report is that friends who used to be there for them aren't there for them as much. People have withdrawn from them. They're not, they don't feel what friendship used to be, which was not an exchange relationship, but a basic, was based on an ethos of solidarity in which you were there for the other person just because you cared about them and not because you could get a reasonable exchange in, uh, of time or energy from the other. And increasingly, people are reporting that that is, that is absent or less and less a part of their friendship situations. And hence, people feel more alone in this historical moment than they did in previous historical moments. The second thing uh, that the, uh, is that this has a tremendous impact on personal life in families and in love relationships. Increasingly, there is a kind of marketplace in relationships uh, for younger people. So that the dating world increasingly uh, is experienced as um, a kind of marketplace in which you, or let's say a supermarket, you go into the supermarket and you see these different 
uh, products on the supermarket shelf and you take one and you taste it, you might taste, taste the, this other person for a night or a week or a month or a year and a half or whatever, and then you go on to the next one, and then you go on to the next one. And once people are into the dating, the, the, the supermarket of dating, it's very hard to stop because um, there are always so many attractively wrapped products on the supermarket shelf, and um, who knows what's going to be in the next one. Eventually, people do stop because it gets extremely tiring, or for some people because they need... They, they need the, the economic power of another earner in order to buy a home or whatever, but eventually it gets very tiring and people do decide to make a commitment. But when they decide to make a commitment, increasingly, because they have learned to be rational people in this society by the ethos of rationality that dominates in the society, they have come to decide, okay, I'm going to make a commitment to another person, um, either a loving commitment or even a marriage to another person, but this commitment is basically of the follow, it takes the following form. Amongst the people who are likely to fall for me in the short run, you will satisfy more of my needs than anyone else. So I'm committed to you and I'm, or I'm ready to marry you because I'm ready to settle down and amongst the people who are likely to fall for me, you'll satisfy more of my needs than anyone else. Now, um, again, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? That seems perfectly rational. Um, it is perfectly rational given the concept, concept of rationality that dominates in the society. But what's, what the problem is, is that when you have two people who have entered into a, uh, a marriage based on that kind of rationality, in which either consciously or unconsciously, this has been the conception of what a commitment is, then people increasingly feel insecure in the relationship itself, in the marriage, so that marriages feel much less like real commitments today because they're based on this kind of a either conscious or unconscious calculation. Um, because you know, and here I'm talking not just about the 50% of marriages that end in divorce, because 50% uh, um, of marriages end in divorce here in this society. I'm not just talking about those, but also about the 50% that don't end in divorce, because for most people, they don't know which of those two categories they're in. <laughs> and so, um, so the issue um, for them, the insecurity that comes in, that, in the marriage is the following. They can never be sure, since they respect their partner as a rational person, and what it is to be a rational person in this society is to be a rational maximizer of self-interest, then the, they can never be sure that at some point in their life, their partner won't be able to cut a better deal. And if they can cut a better deal, that is, they imagine that, that they would find that this other person that they've met will satisfy yet more of their needs than the one that you're with right now or married to right now, then as a rational maximizer of self-interest, of course they're going to do that because that's what it is to be rational. Now, how scary this is, is not just universal. It depends on who you, um, how you perceive yourself uh, in the marketplace of, re of relationships in terms of your own marketability. Because the younger you are, the more conventionally attractive you are, or the more financially secure you are, the less this becomes a total tragedy for your life. Because you're thinking, well, 
it's really sad and I may mourn the loss of this relationship for a year or two or three or even four, but eventually I will go on and others will find me attractive because I have these qualities that do in fact attract a lot of other people. But conversely, the older you are, the less conventionally attractive you are and, and or the less financially secure you are, the more this starts to feel like a huge tragedy because you recognize that you may be really alone in a society in which friendships are significantly weakening and in which there is very little in the way of loving support for single people and particularly for older single people. So um, this becomes a tragic dimension for people, incredibly fearful. In short, there is a crisis in families, a real crisis, a real crisis about the stability. And how much it affects you depends in part, as I say, on your own perception of your marketability in the marketplace of relationships. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not here to put anybody down. I've been divorced myself, and I'm not in any way trying to say that somebody who got divorced is, in a, is a bad person or you left a, a relationship, you're a bad person. No, I'm trying to say to you, in fact, the opposite. It's almost impossible to grow up in this society and not think in these terms. It's almost impossible. Every institution, every, uh, the whole economic system, plus every television show, they're all based on this model of what it is to be a rational person. And it is to have more, it is to maximize one's interests, uh, maximize one's self interest, look out for number one, take care of yourself and so on. Satisfy your needs. We can, we can translate that into psychologies as take care of your own needs. Um, so it's almost impossible to grow up and to live in this society and to be a rational person in this society without living according to this ethos. And I say almost impossible because there is a different uh, consciousness or a different way, and it's what we call a spiritual consciousness. A spiritual consciousness is a consciousness that looks at other human beings and doesn't say, gee, I wonder what you will um, be able to deliver for me. Um, uh, will you be a good provider? Um, will you look good on my arm when I bring you to my boss or to my work group? Um, will you be a good taker carer of my, um, of my children? Will you, be, um, will you deliver something for me? but instead sees other human beings as fundamentally valuable regardless of what he or she can do for you, but simply because uh, valuable and to be cared for simply because they are embodiments of the spirit of God, simply valuable because they are created in the image of God, um, or for those who are secular, let's say, um, in Martin Buber's terms, that you see the other in an I-thou way rather than an I-it way. Or if that still is too mystical, then to say in Immanuel Kant's language, to see the other as a subject and not as an object. Um, whatever the way you language it, 
This is a very different consciousness than the dominant consciousness that most people grow up with and are, uh, and are socialized into in this society. It is a spiritual consciousness, okay? And similarly, when the spiritual consciousness, when looking at nature, doesn't look around and say, gee, I wonder if there's something here I could sell. Maybe I could turn this into a commodity and put it into the marketplace and so forth. But instead, responds to nature with awe and wonder. Um, now, this is a different consciousness, a spiritual consciousness. And when I'm talking about the spiritual um, this crisis in America, what I want to tell you is that a very large number of people feel that they are almost never seen in this spiritual way, that they are almost never recognized as being fundamentally valuable for who they are, that their experience over and over and over again, not only in the world of work, but even in their personal relationships, their relationships even with their spouse, with their children, hey, what have you done for me lately, Dad? What have you done for me lately, Mommy? Um, that even in their most close personal relationships, that they are over and over again perceive themselves as being seen only for what they can deliver, for what they can do for the other, for how, how much they are going to deliver for the other person. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Does this re- do you know anybody like this? Do you know? Okay. This is, but I'm telling you that this is, for most people in this society, this is their experience, that they are almost never seen as an embodiment of the holy, that they are almost never seen as, they feel almost never recognized as being valuable in themselves, but only for what they can do for the other. And, uh, and that, may, combined with, when people spend all day in a work, world of work in which they have been, um, in which the, the experience of the world of work is one of no higher meaning and purpose. And then they come home into a family situation in which they feel that they are not being seen as fundamentally valuable ever or almost ever. When these two things come together, you have a spiritual crisis in the society, a deep spiritual crisis. And the power of the political right was that they named this crisis, that they saw that there was a spiritual crisis, that it was based on the ethos of materialism and selfishness, and they named it and said, there is a spiritual crisis in American society. And the bad news for the liberals and progressives is they were correct about this. There really is a spiritual crisis in America. It is not a phony phony, uh, PR gimmick to win power. There is a real spiritual crisis of the sort that I've just described to you. It faces a huge number of people in their lives, and the right was able to name it and get tremendous credit for naming it. Now, the terrible part of this is that the right simultaneously then blames that on the demeaned others of the society. Whoever is the demeaned other, and this is a formula for every right-wing movement around the world, Wherever you are, whoever is the demeaned other of the society is blamed for generating the selfishness and materialism that uh, that exists in people's lives. 
For much of the 20th century, it was for Europe, it was the Jews. The Jews were blamed for being the force that had generated the materialism and selfishness that was breaking down what otherwise would have been the solidarity of us Germans or of us Czechs or of us Poles or of us French people or of us Italians or whatever, wherever it was. It was this solidarity would have been there and we would have all been in it together except that this selfish and materialistic element, the Jews, undermined it all. In the United States, I mean, and you can name it in different places in the world who that group is, okay? Um, in Southeast Asia, it was the Chinese, in, uh, or in, in, in India, it was the Chinese. In other parts of Southeast Asia, it was the Japanese, or whoever gets blamed is whoever is the demeaned other in that society. In the United States, uh, the primary demeaned other through most of our history have been Native Americans and African Americans. However, in the last 30 years, the right in its uh, uh, generosity has extended the category so that um, it went and said, you know who's doing this? It's feminist women. Why? Because uh, now we know that women have been in struggle to try to rectify 10,000 years of, of unfair treatment of uh, patriarchy and oppression. But what the right said is, see, they're struggling for themselves. They're just looking out for number one. They're not caring about the rest of us, meaning the men. Um, they're, they're, they're not caring about the rest of us, so they're introducing selfishness. Then they turned to gays and gays and lesbians and said, they're the ones also who are introducing this. Gays and lesbians are doing this. Now you might say, well, why gays and lesbians? Well, they said, because they're not raising the next generation. You see, they're not raising the next generation. Now that, by the way, is also happens to be false because wherever you have cities where there's a, um, a, a gay and lesbian population that is not subject to extremes of homophobia, there you find gays and lesbians being able to raise the next generation and they do that. Um, but leave that aside, the truth or falsity of the claim. The lo I'm trying to show you the logic of the claim. And hear what, so that they say, see, they're not raising the next generation, so they're just having sex for the fun of it, and it's not fair to the rest of us because we have consequences from our sex, whereas they just have sex and pleasure. Now, you know, you might say to them, well, you might try pleasure, you know. It was not a bad, not a bad idea. I mean, if God invented us with, you know, God created our bodies in a way that was possible to have pleasure, maybe God intended that, okay? It wasn't like a big whoops, uh-oh. I gave them, you know, I gave them the possibility of having sexual pleasure. I, I didn't, hadn't thought that out beforehand. No, okay. Um, anyway, so... Um, but moving, moving right along, so they blame the gays and lesbians for introducing, um, uh, for just looking out for themselves, okay? Now, uh, then in the last few years, they've extended the category to all liberals or to all secular people and, to, uh, and particularly um, in the last year to all um, immigrants, well, immigrant populations, particularly uh, down in, uh, people coming across the southern border to try to find jobs here. Well, these are other selfish people who are just looking out for themselves and so forth. And who knows where it will end. But the, the irony of the right's position is, is that in the economy, they are the very force that has been our, uh, that is the champion of the ethos of selfishness and materialism in the world of work. Because in the economy, they say, 
Well, they don't hide this, by the way. They're not ashamed of this position. They, they are affirming it. They say, the best good for all will be achieved if each corporation pursues its own self-interest and maximizes as much money as possible, and then that will magically trickle down to the rest of the society, and everybody will benefit. Now, I'm not getting into the theory, their theory, but I want to show you the amazing thing is that they're championing the ethos of selfishness and materialism in the world of work. They fight against every attempt to introduce social responsibility, whether that's in the form of a living wage or whether that's in the form of uh, safety and health conditions at the workplace or the safety, or, um, safety of the products or environmental constraints on what corporations can do to destroy the environment and so forth. Uh, they fight against that because they say that we don't want to put any shackles on the creative energy of corporations. Uh, so they fight against that, that there uh, and are in favor of maximizing ma uh, money and power for as much as possible for each corporation. And then they position themselves as the champion of the pain that people feel when having spent all day in a work world in which that's what's the bottom line, they come home and bring with them, as they inevitably will, the ethos that they've learned all day in the world of work into their private life. And then the right is there to champion the pain that people are feeling there. So you might say, how do they get away with this? How do they get away with working both sides of the street? And the answer is that they get away with it because the liberal and progressive forces aren't even in the relevant ballpark and don't even know that there's a spiritual crisis in the society. So they, when, they, when the liberals and progressives hear about spiritual crisis, they think that this is just code words for the racism, sexism, and homophobia that the right is articulating. They don't even enter into the arena. They give the whole arena to the right politically. And because of that, more and more people in the society have felt like the right seems to be addressing my issue. The right seems to understand something about my life. Because my life is filled not with the macro issues, but with the micro issue that I'm surrounded by people who don't recognize me and I feel like my life is empty of meaning and empty of the love that I really desperately need. And why is that? Well, the right has an analysis. There is somebody to blame it on. Uh, the left doesn't even know that it's happening. They don't even get that it's happening. Now, this is a deep problem with the left, not a superficial one, because it comes from the, uh, the lack of any categories in left and liberal discourse that could possibly make it possible for them to recognize this. Because the left emerged in a struggle with feudalism. It emerged in a struggle in which the feudal order was justified by the, um, its relationship with the church. And the church essentially said that that feudal order of, um, of unequal powers was what God wanted on earth. And what the rising new class of the bourgeoisie did, um, and which the left was part of, was to say, well, you know, the, the answer to that is we need a whole new worldview. And they developed a new worldview that, I, I, um, that um, was articulated in the following language, that that which is real, they said, this is the new metaphysics, the new religion actually that developed, was that that which is real is that which can be verified through sense datum or can be measured. And anything that can't be verified through sense datum or measured is literally not to be taken seriously. And what is the word that we use for that? Non-sense. Okay? It's not sense datum, so it's non-sense. And the fact that um, that that became the new worldview um, 
was in a way a reflection of the power of this new religion that emerged to fight the old religion. The new religion said that that which is real is not some spiritual force in the universe, but that which can be measured and that which can be verified through sense datum. And that this is what reality really is. Now, and this became the dominant religion of the world. Now, this was in part, this new religion uh, got verification through science because science uh, emerged as a very powerful tool for controlling the world. Nothing I am saying is to challenge science because as a study of how the physical world works, I'm totally behind science and think that it was a wonderful and has been a wonderful contribution to the development of humanity. But what I'll call it as scientism, which is different from science, scientism is the worldview that says that that which is real is only that which can be discovered through the techniques of science. And anything that can't be discovered through the uh, techniques of science that is validated through sense datum and, um, and, and or measurement isn't real at all. Now, that no scientist is committed to scientism just by virtue of being a science, scientist. And many scientists reject scientism, even though they very much embrace the scientific method for the sphere within which they work. But scientism became the new religion of the contemporary world. And what, why do I call it a new religion? Because its fundamental basis was the vision that that which is real is that which can be verified through sense datum or measured. But this fundamental statement, this core vision, could not be measured through or verified through sense datum. It was a belief system. Let me say that again so you get this. The core belief of scientism is that, that which is real is that which can be measured or that which can be verified through sense data. But that belief is itself a belief that cannot be verified through sense datum and cannot be measured. There is no relevant measurement and no sense datum that will ever confirm that statement. It is a metaphysical statement that has no more foundation than any other religious statement. The only reason that people don't recognize it as a religion is because they're in that religion. And when you're in a religion, its core belief just seems obvious. That's what it is to be in a religious system, that its core foundational beliefs are beliefs that seem obvious to everybody who's in it, even though there is no particular foundation for it. It's just a belief system. Do you see what I'm talking about? I know this is a little hard to take, maybe, at first, for people, but it is a religious system. And the left was in with the bourgeoisie in this. Now, the bourgeoisie, the new capitalist class, loved this. Because why? Because what was the easiest thing to measure? Well, it turns out that money was the easiest thing to measure. You could count it, and you could see it, and you could feel it, and you could touch it. And so everything got reduced to its value in money. Time is... Money? Imagine that. Time is money. Okay? Everything reduced to money. And what the, the left did was to say, we buy the new religion. We only differ with the capitalist class on the following question. Who should have the money? Okay? We want a fair distribution of money. We want a fair distribution of power. But we don't disagree that that's what's real. That's the ultimate reality. We only disagree with them about how to divide it up. We want it to be done in a fair way. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm totally behind the left in that struggle. 
And I don't believe that anybody can say that they love other human beings, but it's okay if they starve to death. Okay, in other words, I don't believe that that's what Jesus meant by love. Just as I, uh, I don't believe that when Jesus said, love your neighbor, that he meant um, that it was okay to kill them. Okay, I think there was something different there in, in that message. But, um, so I'm totally with the left in its sense of, yeah, there should be a fair distribution of wealth and power. But what I'm trying to tell you is that the problem that the left has faced, that the liberal and progressive forces face in this society today, is that the major deprivation that people feel for a very large section of the public today is not a deprivation of money and power. It is a deprivation of meaning and love. And for that, for the deprivation of meaning and love, the left has no relevant categories. It can't capture it. Just as because the scientism of a society can't capture it, because love cannot be measured, because a meaning and purpose to life cannot be measured, it cannot be captured within the instruments that are available. Do you see what I'm saying? No? No way. Okay. It cannot be captured. So, consequently, um, we have started to create, and I hear the we I'm talking about um, starts with myself and Cornell West, the African-American professor of, um, of religion at uh, Princeton University, and Sister Joan Chittister, who is the Benedictine sister and uh, one of the most courageous women in the Catholic world, who has um, joined with, the, the three of us have joined together to form a, spiritual, a movement of spiritual progressives. We call it the Network of Spiritual Progressives. And our, we have three goals. The first goal is to challenge the religious right in what we think to be its misunderstanding of, uh, of the Bible, its, mis- uh, its misappropriation of the deepest spiritual and religious truths of the Bible to justify war, to justify the cutting of social programs for the poor in order to reduce the taxes on the rich, uh, and it, to justify insensitivity to the environment and many uh, and uh, many other ways in which they misunderstand what the Bible is about and what the spiritual and religious traditions of the human race say. Or another way of putting it is they see the Bible or they hear the Bible only through the right hand of God and we are trying to strengthen the capacity of people to hear God's voice through the left hand of God, consciousness as well. Okay, so that's one uh, part of our program. The second part of our program is we are here to challenge the left, the liberal and progressive forces, and the culture around the left, because it's not the Democratic Party doesn't get up and denounce religion, but a culture around the liberal and progressive world, and particularly intensely in academia, is hostile to religious and spiritual consciousness. And most people uh, who are part, religious or spiritual people who are part of that world, often are given um, the following kinds of messages. First of all, we, the rational, non-religious spiritual people, think that you're probably on a lower level of intellectual or psychological development than the rest of us. And we, we welcome your vote, and we'd, we'd be happy to have you part, part coming into our organizations. Um, and maybe eventually our rationality will rub off on you and you'll give, a, give, a, a, a way, you know, give up on this irrational stuff that you're holding on to about religion or spiritual practice and come to a higher level of understanding. 
And secondly, in the meantime, leave your spiritual baggage at the door because our neutral public space has to be a public space in which there is no specific, any religious or spiritual insights here. We want it to be free of that. So you come in here, you can do whatever you want in your private life, but in our public space together as a liberal or progressive movement, don't bring in any of your religious uh, uh, baggage. Okay, and we want to say to the left in the liberal world, no, you're wrong. Actually, the, um, the crisis in America is deeply about a spiritual crisis and that what you need desperately is the wisdom that comes from the religious and spiritual traditions of the human race that have been able to address the hunger for meaning and purpose. You need spiritual and religious people to come into your movements and not leave their spiritual or religious wisdom at the door, but to bring it into the heart of the liberal and progressive movements and to teach uh, secular people, how to understand and see the spiritual dimension of human reality. So that's our second point. And the third point is, ultimately, and this is the central part, is we need a new bottom line. We need a new bottom line in America. And this is the central thing that the network of spiritual progressives is uh, for, fighting for. We need a new bottom line. And what do we mean by that? We mean that there needs to be a new definition of productivity, efficiency, and rationality. Today, institutions are defined as rational, productive, or efficient to the extent that they maximize money or power. So when you make a judgment about any institution, a corporation, a, a government policy, um, uh, the, our health system, our education system, you talk about it being efficient, productive, or rational to the, to the extent that it maximizes money and power or maximizes the capacity of people within them to maximize money and power. Okay, we're saying that it should be that the definition of productivity, efficiency, and rationality has to be extended so that it's not only about uh, maximizing money and power, but also to the uh, institutions or social practices or government, uh, government practices or legislation, whatever you're looking at, should be judged efficient, rational, and productive also to the extent that it maximizes love and caring, kindness and generosity, ethical and ecological sensitivity, enhances our capacity to respond to others as embodiments of the sacred and enhances our capacity to respond to the universe with awe and wonder and radical amazement at the grandeur of creation. That's now that's a fundamentally different bottom line. And if you use that and take it seriously, then you will quickly see that most of our institutions are inefficient, irrational, and unproductive. They don't tend to produce loving and caring people or ethically or ecologically sensitive people or people capable of seeing others as embodiments of the sacred. They don't tend to do these things. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of loving and caring people in the society. We do. But when you talk to them, you'll quickly find out that for most of them, it, what they're being loving or caring or ethically or ecologically sensitive or capable of responding to others as uh, embodiments of the sacred comes despite the institutions in which they live, not because of them. And we want to change that. We want to change that. Now, this is, uh, up till here you might say, oh, well, these are sweet ideas, but how could they possibly have any impact on politics? What do they have to do with politics? But if we're talking about a new bottom line and taking it seriously, then we have to talk concretely about how do you change the policies of the world to, inf to build 
a, to actually act as though there is this new bottom line. And so in the network of spiritual progressives, we are doing just, we are asking this question and doing this very thing. In the book, The Left Hand of God, I lay out some of the ideas that have led us to develop a spiritual covenant with America. If I had another hour, I'd lay out all the details of the spiritual covenant. Since I don't, I'll just give you one example of our spiritual covenant with America. Um, I'm going to take um, point number seven, which is the point about foreign policy, because, as you all know, the central issue in this last election was our foreign policy. And what we say about foreign policy, and I want to contrast it not just with the right, but contrast it with liberal Democrats, because what, what you hear from the liberal Democrats, or even from the left, from the anti-war movement, you hear people saying, take our troops out, bring the troops home. I'm for that. But... That vision is one that doesn't deal with another level of human reality that has to be addressed, at least from the standpoint of spiritual progressives. And what we're saying is this. If you want to actually deal with security for America, if you want homeland security, if you want a rational foreign policy, then it has to be based not on domination, but on generosity on caring for other people, and that that is a fundamental paradigm shift, not just the shift of what do you do in Iraq. It's a fundamental paradigm shift. So to make it more concrete, we are saying that what the United States needs to do is to take the leadership to be the first to act out this, but then to help also to bring G8 countries involved in this, to create a global Marshall Plan to take 5% of the, of the gross domestic product of the United States for each year for the next 20 years and use that to once and for all eliminate global poverty, homelessness, hunger, inadequate education, inadequate health care. And that the trillions of dollars that will be spent instead in the next 20 years for military will not bring us closer to security. It will not protect us. But neither will what the the Democrats are proposing, and neither will what the left is proposing. They don't have, they know what they're against, but they don't have a vision of what they are for. And what we are saying we need to be for is a vision of generosity in the world, a vision that articulates the possibility of a different kind of world. In other words, to speak from the left hand of God and not from the right hand of God, to speak from the standpoint of the possibility of love and caring in the world and not just from the standpoint of domination and control in the world. And that possibility to go at the world in that way will have far better consequences. You know, sometimes you hear right-wingers criticizing liberals and saying, why aren't you looking at the outcome of your policies and showing, you know, you haven't ended, uh, uh, you haven't ended uh, poverty with your programs? Well, guess what? We've had 5,000 years of militarism, and they haven't ended wars. Their policy isn't working. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, if you want an empirical thing, how much has building up these armies for the past 5,000 years brought in the way of peace and security? How many hundreds of millions of people were killed in the 20th century? Okay, this is not a policy that's working. So give us 50 years of a policy of generosity instead of another 50 years of a policy of who can figure out the newest arms system and who can figure out how to best best run military control over everybody in the world. It's a failed policy and it will continue to fail. Try the left hand of God. Or another way of putting this is stop 
taking your religion as something that only belongs on Sunday in church or on Saturday in synagogue or Friday in the mosque. It did, there are deep truths there that need to be in the public sphere and not just on the weekend. So, okay, now, when I start talking about this, most people say, look, this sounds very nice, but come on, you know that everybody's just out for themselves. And this is one of the things that holds everything in place in the world, the way in which it is, is that everybody has this certainty that everybody else is just looking out for number one and that it'll never, it'll never be possible to build a different kind of world. Um, it's just impossible because um, it's just unrealistic. Now, of course, from one standpoint, as I could speak as a Jewish theologian, and here go back to what Deborah was saying, because I actually have, I haven't been speaking primarily as a theologian tonight, but um, if I did, I'd try and tell you that the vision of God in, the, in, the, uh, in what uh, Christians call the Old Testament, which we call the Hebrew Bible, uh, is a vision of a power that is, makes possible the transformation of that which is to that which ought to be. Or another way of putting this is that what is idolatry in the Torah is realism. Idolatry is realism. What is it to be a realist? It is to accept that which is as your definition of what can be. To be a believer in God is to believe that there is a force in the universe that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. And that's what it is to be a believer and that's why I say in my book, Jewish Renewal, that, um, that there are an awful lot of people who go around go, uh, proclaiming themselves religious, being in, the, in their churches and their synagogues and their mosques and so forth, who actually are Hellenists in drag. Um, that, that is, they dress up like they're religious people, but they don't believe that there is something that makes possible a transformation of the world from that which is to that which ought to be. They don't believe in God. Um, so um, we'll leave that aside. I'll just say, um, they say, back to the argument that you're going to have tomorrow if you ever talk to your friends about what you're hearing tonight, and, you, um, if, uh, and they'll say to you, oh, you're so unrealistic. None of this can ever happen. Of course, that's exactly what everyone said to the women's movement 40 years ago. And you lived through an, one of the most significant revolutions in human history in the past 40 years in which a huge number of women came to the conclusion that they weren't going to be realistic. When they were asked, show us a place where women have equal power, they couldn't show it. When they were asked, show us a time in human history when women had this, they couldn't show it. Okay, they couldn't show it. And so everybody who was rational said, be realistic. It can't change. This is the structure of reality. Patriarchy is just built into reality. And what's more, how could it possibly change? Because you yourselves say men have more power than you do and that they benefit from that more power. Well, if they have more power and they benefit from more power, why in the world do you think you could change that? They have more power than you. How can you change it? Okay, but we've seen in 40 years a tremendous transformation. I don't mean that patriarchy has been eliminated. I mean that the ch amount of change that has taken place so far exceeds what any woman in the 1960s would have dreamt was really possible in their lifetime uh, as to be a living miracle. Okay, I'm asking you to be unrealistic in that same way to go for a new vision of possibility. But I know how hard this is and, uh, um, because um, when I spoke the first time 
tried to give a talk about these ideas, it was to a group of 400 Methodists in Kansas. And when, they, um, and when I spoke to them, they were so excited that they gave me a standing ovation afterwards. And then they came up to me and said, but it'll never work. And so I said, well, what do you mean it'll never work? How come it'll never work? They said, well, you know, because the only people who'd really want what you're talking about are Methodists in Kansas. So I said, well, why do you think that? And they said, because we, we're smart people. We read, um, we read The New Yorker, we read, the, uh, we read Time Magazine and Newsweek, and we, watch, uh, we listen to national public radio, and we watch uh, um, sophisticated television shows, and we know that the people on the coast are all just selfish narcissists. Okay, that's just... What, Every place you look, that's what you get. And it's not just from right-wing media. Read the, read the Nation or read Mother Jones and you get the same feel that everybody is just, that it's impossible because there's so much uh, cynicism around. Now, conversely, when I talk about this on the coast, if I talk about it in Los Angeles or in San Francisco or Seattle or Washington or New York or Boston, what do people say to me? Great ideas, but middle America? They'll never buy it. And this is what holds it in place, is our certainty that everyone else is only looking out for number one, that nobody else but us wants a world of love and kindness and generosity, that nobody else would want a new bottom line. And this is why it's so important, why I'm here to say to you, you have got to come out of the closet as spiritual people into the public sphere. You have got to be out there in the public sphere saying, not, I am, I am a compromiser but rather saying, no, I am somebody who is going to go with whatever time I have on this planet, I am going to go in the public sphere and proclaim my highest vision of the good. I actually want a world of love and kindness and generosity, of ethical and ecological sensitivity. I want a world in which people treat each other as embodiments of the sacred. And that's what I'm, not, I'm going for. That's what I'm going to do with my time on this planet is to put forward my highest vision. And what I'm here to tell you folks is it's possible that there is a movement of people, this network of spiritual progressives. I'm here to invite you to join it. You can find it online at spiritualprogressives.org. Because if there's anything that what I, in what I'm saying that makes sense to you, if there's anything that makes sense to you, help us make it real. Help us build something like this. We have a group in, in San Diego, already a chapter. I spoke last night at the Episcopal Church down, downtown, the Episcopal Cathedral. There were, it was filled with 300, 350 people. Uh, we have a, an, an active chapter in San Diego. I hope you'll become part of it. If you join the organization, we'll give your information right, right away. To And you also, as part of it, you get a free subscription to the magazine, to Tikkun. But I'm asking you to join with us, not simply because we need the financial support, but because we need you to come out and we are building ways to come out in the public sphere with this new vision, with a vision of spiritual progressives. We can actually do Tikkun. Tikkun is a Hebrew word. It means to transform and heal the world. We can do Tikkun. We can build a world on a fundamentally different basis. Let's do it together. Thank you so much.
So I'm going to take questions or statements. Um, we're um, just keep them short, and um, but come, yes. Thank you for this very elucidating and inspirational talk. I couldn't help think of C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, and the gift love and the need love. Mm -hmm. And then I, I'd like to extend it further in the, the crisis in Islam. Do you think these young people are having a spiritual crisis, and that's why they're, I mean, maybe it's a physical crisis, they don't have jobs or food, but I'm just wondering if that may be a motivating factor that... Absolutely. The same process is happening there as here. Yes. You see, the globalization of capital has been destructive, not just on the economic level for a lot of people, but also destructive on the cultural level. Because what the globalization of capital has meant is the introduction of the ethos of selfishness and materialism into those societies. And as a result, people um, who have no social uh, support network, who have no... Um, who have no network under them for how far they fall. As those dynamics become more and more uh, central to the societies, you get two things happening. On the one hand, a small middle class developing that is actually way better off because of American capital and American, uh, and American um, and, or not just American, because here we're talking about the globalization of all of the Western, Western capitalist countries into third world countries. They are way better off because of globalization. And they're the people that Tom Friedman hangs out with, you know, in the, if, you, if you read him in the New York Times, the columnist there. There's a percentage of people in every, each, each of these countries that is really benefiting tremendously from the uh, globalization of, of capital. They have learned the skills of looking out for number one. They have learned to fit into the culture that the United States is and the other Western countries are developing, are bringing to the rest of the world. But for a whole bunch of other people, what, what Western uh, society has brought is these huge slums around the country because they've closed down the possibility of people making a living on small subsistence farming because we're dumping our products in third, third world countries and we subsidize them here so we're able to sell them at a much lower rate, lower cost than they can produce them there. We drive people out of their, bit, out of their ability to exist as subsistence farmers. They then come into these slums around the cities and there's a huge amount of pain that people are feeling on the material level. But it's not just the material level, it's also on the spiritual level. Because the more that they absorb, or they see their friends and others absorbing the values of Western culture, the more they're seeing around them people looking out for number one and caring only about themselves, no longer connected to religion, and no, no longer connected to a community of people who care about each other. So then they are a counter Islamic fundamentalism or Christian fundamentalism or Jewish fundamentalism or Hindu fundamentalism or whatever the fundamentalism that's being provided to them. And they say, wow, here's a group of people, here's a place where people really seem to care about each other. And that is not an illusion. And I, it's the thing that I always have to tell liberal or progressive audiences that, that there is real caring in, in right-wing religious communities. It's not an illusion. There is real caring there amongst the people who are in that community. It's just that for everybody else is in trouble. But for those who are in the community, there is real caring going on. And so then you find yourself in this sense of a struggle between this caring community that has accepted you, but has accepted you on condition that you believe its beliefs about the world, in which one of those beliefs is that everybody else is damned.
because they're not part of, of you. And in fact, they're out to get you and trying to destroy the com community of the saved. So yes, I think that's very fundamental to what's going on in, uh, in Islamic fundamentalism right now. Got to treat that too then. What? Got to treat that too then. Well, but we have to treat it the exact same way. We need, in other words, if these are the two primary uh, struggles going on, you have on the one hand you've got um, the ethos of the capitalist marketplace, and on the other hand you've got a fundamentalist religious alternative. We need a middle path, and the middle path is the spiritual progressives who reject the secularism that says all, re all religion is just baloney, and on the other hand, reject the vision of religion that says demeans other people and instead uh, affirms a different religious or spiritual perspective that says fundamentally, and this is the core of the network of spiritual progressives, that the well-being of us as Americans depends on the well-being of every other person on the planet, that we are fundamentally linked to everyone else on the planet, that everyone is created in the image of God, and that everybody's well-being is equally important to God as our own well-being. That... Using the right hand and left hand of God, how do you deal with someone like Ahmadinejad? Ahmadinejad? Yes. The president of Iran. Um, I see um, people of that sort, like Ahmadinejad, who basically said Israel should be wiped off the face of the earth and there was never a holocaust, um, as a product of a world in which um, the United States and other Western countries have been extremely demeaning towards uh, Arabs and Islam and have not treated that, um, that world with um, the human dignity and respect that they deserve. Now, that doesn't mean I am apologizing for him or saying, oh, well, it's all understandable. But in a way, I do understand it. I, I understand why people will take the most provocative thing that they can think of and say it to get to, to, um, to scream out in pain, recognize us. We are just as important as you. So um, I don't necessarily think that the, uh, that the solution is, always, is in a short run, okay, here, I'll be nice to you. Uh, everything will work out. It's that we're talking about a systematic approach to changing the, changing the world. We're talking about a 20-year strategy for changing the world. And in that 20 years, if the United States becomes understood and recognized as the primary force um, projecting a politics of love and caring in the world, if we, in fact, are the source for a global Marshall Plan, and if Israel takes the same stance in relationship to Palestinians that, um, that is the stance of we want to treat you with caring and respect and we want to deal with the suffering that we have, uh, we have uh, uh, delivered to you. We want to repair that in some way. I believe that over the course of uh, a generation or two, we can wipe out the hatreds that have been there. But conversely, if we think that we can continue to dominate and control our way into security, all we will do is have uh, um, for uh, dozens of Ahmadinejads, and not just in Iran, but in many, many other countries around the world. So it's our choice. 
We, either, we have a moment in history, and this is where, where I started. There's a moment now in which because there has been an opening of social space, it's possible to push our government in a different direction. The Democrats have no positive vision. They don't know what to do with this power. Nancy Pelosi yesterday says on television, um, well, we'll govern from the center. Well, what does that mean? She doesn't have any conception of what that means. She doesn't have a vision of what to do. And she couldn't, as she said herself, well, our party has conservatives, it has liberals, and it has centrists. And we're trying to try and govern from the center. That's not a vision. That's, not, that's a political manipulation. That's how do you talk politi- political ease. It's not a vision of a good world. It's not a vision of where we go and what we stand for and what we believe in. We need that. The Democrats at this moment are desperately need a positive vision for the world that spiritual people can give them if, if, if we come out as spiritual progressives. And that is absolutely what's so exciting about this historical moment. And that means you. There's nobody else who's going to do it. You know, it's like everybody is saying, well, we'll wait for another Martin Luther King. You know, or sometimes people, you know, when they're stuck with nothing else, they say, okay, Rabbi Lerner, you do it. You know, we've got a great idea for you. You do this, you do that. It's not how it happens. You want significant change in this world. It's only going to happen if there's a grassroots movement from below. And that means a movement right here in the heart, in the belly of the beast in San Diego. Okay, right here in the most difficult part of the country to, to deal with anything. Right here, there needs to be a strong voice of spiritual progressives. Uh, okay, I don't know if I really dealt with your question, but I talked my way around it. <laughs> I'm uh, thinking about uh, international terrorism, terrorist attacks on America, uh, the war in Iraq, foreign policy, and the insecurity that is real in the world, real in America. And um, I'd like to ask you to address how thinking in terms of the left and right hand of God really addresses the true insecurity of our modern world the way that um, military military response is an address is a way to address uh, mm-hmm. insecurity. Um, okay. Well, the first thing I want to say to you is, isn't it interesting that um, there were no such attacks until the last ten or fifteen years? Does, uh, in other words, it's not as if the world necessarily or automatically or ontologically built into the structure of reality is always going to have these kinds of realities. It's a new phenomenon. It's something that, that has not been part of the reality of Western civilization for hundreds of years or even 50 or 100 years. It's just, it's a brand new phenomenon. It's caused. So you need to look at what causes it, where the anger comes from, and how do you deal with that anger in some way that actually could succeed. And what I'm saying to you is the way that it can succeed, that you can succeed, is by drying up the cesspools of hate from which these crazy people manage to recruit their support. And the way to do that is the Global Marshall Plan. The Global Marshall Plan is a way of showing a strategy of generosity, whereas a strategy of domination just doesn't work. It hasn't succeeded. And we have the perfect test of that in George W. Bush and his strategy of a war in Iraq. Far from managing to destroy terrorists, 
He has generated more terrorists. He has been far more successful than bin, uh, bin Laden or any other recruiter for terrorism in the world. He is the greatest recruiter of terrorism in the whole world because he used the strategy of the right hand of God. And what I'm saying to you is it doesn't work. It has the exact opposite consequence. And I've seen the same thing happen in Israel-Palestine, where Israelis thought that the way to deal with Palestine was to repress and repress and repress, and it hasn't worked. So at some point or other, people have to wake up and say, oh, I get it, our strategy isn't working. We need a new direction. And that's what the left hand of God is about. It is about that kind of new direction. Again, I want to thank you all for being here and also thank you for, I'd like to meet any of you who want to be, I mean, I appreciate applause, but I actually came here to find allies. If there are any allies in the room, first of all, please join, take the thing tonight. Don't do it tomorrow. Tomorrow you've got a lot of other things on your agenda. Do it tonight. Fill out the thing tonight. Give it to me while I'm sitting at the table. I'll be here to sign books for anybody who wants to. Many blessings to all of you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.